morning we come to the end of our study of the Belgian Confession, and so we turn one last time to Article 37, and what we confess and believe concerning the great and awesome day of the Lord. Please turn there to Article 37, page 870 in the back of the songbooks, page 198 in the Forms and Prayers books. This morning we'll read the first paragraph and the last four paragraphs of the article before turning once more to the prophecy of Zephaniah. Article 37, beginning at the first paragraph. Finally, we believe according to God's word that when the time appointed by the Lord has come, which is unknown to all creatures, and the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven bodily and visibly as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the living and the dead. He will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. Now moving down to the paragraph beginning with the evil ones. The evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciences and shall be made immortal, but only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In contrast, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes. And their cause at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the heart of man could never imagine. So we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This the church of Christ does believe and confess throughout the world. Let's turn also to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, picking up where we left off last time. We'll be getting our, our reading at verse 9 and read the end of the chapter. Zephaniah 3 can be found on page 1004. 1004 if you're using the Adoration Bibles. Again, we'll read beginning at verse 9 of chapter 3 and to the end of the chapter, but our focus for this morning will be particularly on verses 14 to 17. This is God's holy word. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, 
Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn from the, for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we began our study of the Belgian Confession a number of months ago by by asking the questions, who do we say that God is? Who is he? What is he like? And to those questions, our confession gave the answer. He is eternal and incomprehensible. He is invisible, unchangeable, and infinite. He is almighty. He is completely wise, just, and good. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. And this is what we discover here in Article 37 as well. And this is what we discover also and throughout the oracles of Zephaniah's prophecy. Zephaniah has been showing us who God is. In the last two chapters especially, we've come to see that, that God is uncompromising in his justice. On account of the sin of the human race, God is going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He is going to cut off mankind from the face of the earth, Zephaniah has said. For the great day of the Lord is near, he says. It is near and and hastening fast. A day of wrath is that day. A day of, of ruin and devastation. A day of distress and anguish. A day on which the consuming Jealousy of the Lord will burn up this old world to cleanse it. For God, we heard last time, God has heard the taunts and the reviling of the wicked. And God has seen the the complacency and the hardness of heart living even in in the lives of those who are supposed to be his people. And so Zephaniah has shown us that God is uncompromising in his justice. But that's not all Zephaniah has shown us, is it? For Zephaniah has not only shown us that God is uncompromising in his justice, but he's also shown us that God is unmatched in his mercy. To wayward Judah, to wayward you and me, God has said, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, seek righteousness, seek humility. In order that you might be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. 
God has assured his people, the faithful remnant, that on that day, that great and awesome day, he will be mindful of them and he will restore their fortunes. And so God has summoned them, even as our confession summons us to do this morning, he has summoned them to wait for him, to to look forward to that day with longing in order that they might enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here in verses 9 to 13 of chapter 3, Zephaniah tells us that on that day, God will, will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech in order that they might call upon his name and serve him with one accord. Verse 11 tells us that when God comes to judge the wicked, the righteous will not be put to shame. You see, whereas the, the wicked will stand before God naked and afraid, stripped of all their self-righteousness, the righteous, the elect, will stand before God unafraid and unashamed, clothed in his righteousness. In verse 12, we learn that God will remove from our midst all that is proud and haughty, and he will preserve for himself a people who are humble and lowly, a people who will find refuge in his name. And at the end of verse 13, Zephaniah says that God's people will graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Zephaniah proclaims the the good news of Isaiah 40, the good news that we heard in our assurance of pardon that Christ shall indeed come to tend his flock like a shepherd, to, to gather the lambs in his arms, to gently lead those who are with young. Zephaniah proclaims, the fulfillment of Psalm 23, when, when you and I shall finally come to graze in those green pastures for the full restoration of our souls, and we shall come to that table where we'll not be afraid of our enemies. The imagery that Zephaniah is using here is really that of paradise restored. With these words, the, the covenant promise, I will be their God and, and they'll be my people, reaches its, its climax as God's people are made to, to do his will, to, to take refuge in his name. And as God himself shepherds them in paradise restored. And what does all this lead Zephaniah to say in verse 14? Sing aloud. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. This coming day of the Lord caused Zephaniah to say, sing aloud. He bids God's people to sing. But that's not all he says, for not only does he call us to sing to God, but he says that God is going to sing to us. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, a mighty hero who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will Exalt over you with loud singing. And so as we consider the great and awesome day of the Lord one last time, and as we 
prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning, I'd like for us to think about two things together. In the first place, I'd like for us to consider the question, what is it that makes God's people sing? What makes God's people sing? In the first place, we'll consider the song of the delivered. But secondly, I'd like for us to think about what is it that makes God sing? What makes God sing? And so in the second place, we'll consider the song of the deliverer. So boys and girls, how might you answer that first question? Why do God's people sing? Why do God's people sing? On the surface, we could, of course, begin to answer that question by saying, well, well, God's people sing because God calls them to sing. That's what we see at the very start of verse 14, isn't it? Zephaniah, as the, the prophet of the Lord, God's messenger, he says to you, he says to me, sing aloud. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, rejoice and exalt with all your heart. And Zephaniah, of course, is not the only one to do this. Psalm 95 begins with the words, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a, a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 96 begins with the words, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Psalm 98 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Break forth into joyous song and, and sing praises. It's true, boys and girls, that believers sing because God calls them to sing. But this morning we need to go a little deeper because what you'll discover in every instance where God calls his people to sing is a profound reason behind it. And the reason is this, God calls his people to sing in response to what God has done. God calls his people to sing in response to what God has done. In Psalm 95, God's people are called to sing because although he is the great God and the great king above all gods, he is also our God. In Psalm 96, God's people are called to sing on account of his glory among the nations, on account of his marvelous works among the peoples. For whereas all the gods of the peoples are but worthless idols, Psalm 96 says, our God is the one true God who made the heavens. In Psalm 98, God's people are called to sing because he has done marvelous things. Because his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And we see a similar pattern here in Zephaniah 3, don't we? In verse 14, Zephaniah calls God's people to sing. And then in verse 15, he gives us the reason, the, the rationale for our singing. Why should God's people sing? Why should you sing? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Because he has cleared away your enemies. You should sing because the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. Boys and girls, this is why God's people sing. God's people sing because they have something to sing about. God's people sing because although they deserve to endure the uncompromising judgment of God, they've instead come to experience the unmatched mercy of God. 
Just think again about Zephaniah's original audience. Zephaniah, we know, is, is prophesying to Judah, to wayward Judah. Zephaniah is prophesying to a people who have forsaken the Lord. He's prophesying to a people who have forsaken God for all the false gods of the world. He's prophesying to a people who are hard of heart. They've heard God's pleading through the prophets, and they have refused to repent. These were dark days for the people of God. And so that that judgment is coming should, should come as no surprise. We should expect a message of judgment. But now through the dark clouds of God's judgment, glimmerings of his mercy still shine through. Up until verse 9 of chapter 3, sadness and depression would seem to have been the order of the day. And coming to verse 14, you, you might otherwise expect a summons to unrelieved weeping and lamentation. After everything that Zephaniah has said, especially in chapters 1 and 2, you might expect him to say, Weep aloud, O daughter of Zion. Wail, O Israel. Lament and mourn with all your heart. But instead, we discover just the opposite. Instead, Zephaniah summons us to sing, to shout, to rejoice, to exalt with all our hearts. Commenting on this verse, Old Palmer Robertson writes, by, by piling up every available expression for joy, the prophet leaps across the veil of gloom into the realm of grace beyond devastation. In his confidence about this future glory, he summons the people now to sing this song of celebration. Zephaniah, it would seem, is not content merely to announce to his contemporaries a a joy that's going to belong to future generations, but rather he exhorts them to sing already now. Despite the inevitability of this great and awesome day of the Lord with all of its devastating consequences, God's people are summoned to sing already now. Someone to sing, and not with limpid or fainting spirits, writes Robertson, but with all your heart. Calls to sing with all our heart. In other words, what Zephaniah is really saying is he's saying, cast aside all cautious reservation. Let down your guard against the possibility of, of future disappointment. Shout aloud, rejoice, and exalt with all your heart. For the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, he is in your midst. And so you have no reason to fear any evil. Now perhaps as you contemplate these words, you're seeing a tension in Zephaniah's prophecy. Because how can Zephaniah proclaim the severe judgment of God on the one hand and and the unmatched mercy of God on the other. Zephaniah himself does not explicitly resolve this tension, does he? He he proclaims both aspects of this one message from the Lord. Zephaniah foresaw the destruction of the world, and so Zephaniah proclaimed, God's going to destroy the world. And Zephaniah foresaw the salvation of a people. And so Zephaniah proclaimed that too. But Zephaniah leaves us in suspense. He never resolves the tension. He doesn't explicitly tell us how this can be so. 
Is God speaking out of both sides of his mouth? How can God say, judgment's coming, salvation's coming? How can God say both things? But when we read, up, but when we read on into the New Testament, we come to know exactly how this tension is resolved, don't we? The tension is resolved in the person of Christ. And more particularly, the tension is resolved at, at the cross of Christ. Because it was there at the cross of Christ that these words of Zephaniah 3.15 found their, their glorious fulfillment. It was there at the cross that this message of salvation was secured. When Jesus died, the just for the unjust, bearing the, the weight of our sins upon his own shoulders, God's judgments were taken away from you. The cross of Christ was the only way in which God could be said to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And when Christ said from the cross, it is finished, and when he rose again from the dead, he, he cleared away our spiritual enemies. And now, even now, by the power and indwelling of his spirit, the words of, of Zephaniah, they are already now fulfilled in our midst. The true king of Israel, the Lord Jesus, the, the Lord is in our midst. And so we have no reason to fear any evil. The very same Jesus who said to his disciples in the midst of the, the storm on the sea, it is I, do not be afraid. The very same Jesus says the very same thing to us this morning. It is I, do not be afraid. I am with you, do not be afraid. What a glorious reason for us to sing this morning. Our confession tells us that when our Lord returns, the evil ones will be convicted by their own consciences. They will be made immortal unto eternal torment and punishment in the everlasting fire that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I, will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus, will confess your names before God his Father and his holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped away from your eyes and your cause at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And so it will come to pass, these words of Zephaniah 3 verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Son of God will confess your names to the Father and he'll place the unfading crown of glory upon your head. And your cause, though condemned by the world, will be declared to have been the cause of the Son of God. And this congregation is what makes the believer sing. This is the song of the delivered, that as we heard in our call to worship, as we'll sing later on in our worship service, unto God Almighty, sitting on the throne, and the Lamb victorious, be the praise alone. Why? Because God has wrought salvation. He has done marvelous things. So who would not extol him, holy king of kings? 
But as we read on into verses 16 and 17, we discover that it's not only God's people who sing, but Zephaniah tells us that God himself is going to sing as well. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Notice once again here in verse 16 that the Lord Jesus has taken away every reason for you and me to be afraid. If you've come to Christ in repentance and faith, God says to you, fear not, don't be afraid. Unlike the people of Israel who stood at the foot of the mountain when the law was read, trembling with fear, we don't need to be afraid because we've come to the Lord Jesus. We have no reason to be afraid. And he presses this point home further still when he says, let not your hands grow weak. Let not your hands grow weak, which is a way of saying that fear no longer needs to paralyze you. You see in the Bible, limp hands or, or weak hands, that's a, that's a figure of speech that's often used to describe a despair over circumstances that renders a person unable to function. The person who has weak hands, limp hands, is, is so afraid he, he can't do anything. He just cowers. We read, for example, in Nehemiah 6, that the taunting and reviling of Judah's enemies was intended to frighten them in order that their hands might drop from the work. And so Nehemiah prayed, but now will God strengthen our hands, strengthen my hands. And God speaks about the day of the Lord in Isaiah 13. God says to the wicked, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every heart will melt. On that great day of the Lord, the wicked will stand, weak hands, unable to do a thing, paralyzed with fear. But to his own people, God says, fear not. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, a mighty hero, a mighty warrior who will save. To be sure, many calamities and sorrows may befall the people of Judah on account of their sins against the Lord. But in the end, the Lord is going to show forth his power to save them from every enemy. And Zephaniah assures us of this further still by telling us not only what God will do for us, but also by telling us how God views us. The very same God who is mighty to save, who will save, how does he view us? How does he see us? Zephaniah says, he sees you in this way, he will rejoice over you with gladness. And he'll quiet you by his love. And he'll exalt over you with loud singing. Again, O. Palmer Robertson writes that Zephaniah 3.17 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Because in verse 17 we learn that God, God doesn't just put up with you. He doesn't just tolerate you. But he delights in you. Indeed, Zephaniah says he sings over you. 
God knows everything there is to know about you, all that you've ever done. He knows it all. But He loves you. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are, are the apple of God's eye. We are His treasured possession. To quote one pastor, that the Almighty God should derive delight from His creation is significant in itself. But that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner is incomprehensible. God breaking out into singing, God joyful with delight, all because of you. All because of you. Boys and girls, what is it that makes God sing? You make him sing. You make him sing. He rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The imagery that Zephaniah uses here, boys and girls, should be familiar to many of you. Because when Zephaniah says that God is going to sing over you and quiet you by his love, well, that's, wasn't that kind of similar to what mom and dad sometimes do when they're tucking you into bed at night? They sing to you. Isn't that what a nursing mother does as she rocks her child to sleep? She sings to the child. And the child is quieted. The child, the child is, is calmed by his mother's love. And this congregation is what God does for his people. This is how God views them. That tender love and a father, a mother's eyes, and they're holding that newborn child. That's how God sees you. That's how he views you. The tender love a father has for all his children, dear. What love the Lord bestows on them who worship him in fear. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He'll exalt over you with loud singing. Zephaniah is saying that the Lord concentrates all of his love, all of his affection, all of his grace, all of his mercy. He concentrates it all on you. He rejoices over you. He delights in you, and so much so that it makes him sing. See, contrary to what Satan would have us to believe, the Lord is not harboring anger toward us. He's not displeased with us. He's not, he not keeping us at an arm's length until we finally get our act together. That's not the way God deals with his people. That's not how he views them. But he loves them. He loves you. And he's in the midst of you so that you have no reason to fear any evil. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in this Christ, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, God invites us to believe that, that we have no reason to fear. He invites us to believe that when we come to the table to eat of the bread and to drink from the cup. As we come to the table, we're summoned not only to remember and celebrate what Jesus accomplished for us in the past, but also to, 
to look forward to what Jesus yet has in store for us in the future. As a gracious reward for all that you have suffered in this life. Some of you have suffered a great deal. As a gracious reward for all that you have suffered and endured in this life, our confession assures us that God is going to make you possess a glory such as the heart of man can never imagine. Listen to how John describes this glory, at least in part in Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. The Lord is going to sing over you. He's going to sing over you. And so we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how our confession ends, on that note of triumph, that note of eager longing and anticipation. That those who share this confession have no reason to fear. He who testifies to all these things says, surely I am coming soon. And so we pray even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning once again unafraid and unashamed because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time, that apparent tension between your justice and your mercy was resolved in Christ as he hung upon the cross, as he took away our sin and shame, as he hung naked there, so that we might stand before you clothed and his righteousness, holiness, and obedience on the day of his coming. Father, we have every reason to sing to you. And even more reason, we consider the wonder of all wonders that you sing over us. That on the last day and in all eternity, we'll hear the sweet singing of a Savior who loves us who rejoices in us, who exalts over us. Father, we pray that as we now come to the table, you would direct our hearts, direct our eyes to that day, the great feast with the great king. We thank you, Lord, that through these earthly elements, he lifts us up into heaven so that we get a foretaste, a spiritual foretaste of that great table. 
We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.